Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Payments professor here, and welcome to the Payments Podium. Today, I am excited to be able to talk to you about payments risk. Risk is always one of the hottest topics. When you hear words like fraud, you hear words like risk, you hear, hey, we suffered a loss, that usually gets your attention. And in the world of payments, there are so many different ways that money can be lost. There are so many different new evolving payment channels and new evolving risk and things that need to be taken into consideration. And today, to make this really fun and exciting, I got a risk expert. I got Sharon Blanchett with us, and she's going to be talking to us about well, payments risk. And Sharon, I'd like to welcome you to the Payments Podium. If you would, give everybody a quick introduction and history about yourself. Well, thanks, Payments Professor. I am thrilled to be here. I'm very appreciative. Um, I have been in the risk space for my entire career, um, mostly in uh, financial institutions, a little bit in healthcare, but um, I have focused a lot on risk, consumer regulatory compliance, and anti-financial crimes. Um, I'm currently with a small boutique consulting firm. And um, like I said, I'm thrilled that you invited me to be on this podcast. Well, we are so glad to have you. And, and, you know, and it's funny when you even say small boutique consulting firm, that's usually where a lot of the work is really being done. And people don't realize that because you get exposed when you're with those firms to so many different areas, so many different people and so many different banks and businesses as well. Now, one of the things that I wanted to really be able to discuss has to do a lot with well, we know about risk historically in payments, but we also are being told about, well, what's new? What's trending? What's happening now? And what's happening now has a lot to do with faster payments. And I'd ask you, well, again, we know payments are getting faster, but are there anything that is unique, at least from a fraud perspective, that affects the faster payment channels, whether it's same day, CH, RTP, or even the upcoming Fed now? Oh, great question. I don't think there's necessarily anything unique in that I don't think we're going to find some new type of fraud sprouting out out of the clear blue because the channel is becoming faster. What I think is going to happen is there's just going to be less time for the financial institution to react. Um, So faster payments, faster fraud, Um, less time to get on top of it. What financial institutions want to do is stop it from happening. So there's going to be less time for that. Uh, And I got to agree. It is that reaction time. And you do want to definitely be able to stop it from happening if there is any way to be able to stop it from happening. And usually, what do you tell people when it comes to stopping it from happening? I mean, do you tell them to monitor? Do you tell them to have controls? What would you recommend to somebody who, you know, is going into the world the same day ACH, is going into the world RTP, or even thinking about Fed now that, hey, here's what you should do. This is what you should monitor for. These are the controls that you should have in place. What would you recommend to them? Well, um, before I go into what I recommend, I just want to set up a scenario so that it, it makes sense when I when I provide some controls. Think of ACH kiting or think of a fraudster creating an account with a synthetic ID, um, transferring uh, funds 
into that new account from an account where the fraudster isn't the owner. So he's funding the account with funds that aren't his and then using the funds before the R10 comes back. Um, so that that's a, a typical scenario. And that is happening more and more often. And with faster payments, the institution is going to have less time to react to that. So now let's think about the controls that a financial institution can put in place. It absolutely has to be automated. I don't think there's any way to get on top of this without using some automated systems. Um, there are two types, and I'll just set up the two types for you. There's the type where it's more ID authentication and ID verification. So you want to know that Sharon Blanchett is really Sharon Blanchett. Some of that software is just mind-boggling. Um, I'm very mm -hmm. fond of it. It's going to use multiple data points, geolocation, age of the email address, length of the phone number tenure, um, trying to link a name with an address, you know, a physical address. Um, and some of them um, get as granular as they know when I'm holding my device in my left hand and I'm swiping right to left. Oh, wow. It is cool and sexy. Trust me. Cool so and sexy. I love I it. All right. That's type one. What's type two? Type two is sort of the after the fact fraud software that we've known for decades, to be honest with you. Um, and after the fact doesn't necessarily mean the next day. It's just after the transaction has occurred. And um, it uses artificial intelligence as much as type number one does. But what it's going to do is pull transactions and look for trends and patterns. And if it sees something that could potentially be fraud, it's going to throw up an alert, right? It's going to toss up an alert and people in some back office are going to diligently work the alerts. Um, that's after the fact, whereas the first type I described is ID authentication. It's trying to stop the fraudster in his tracks. So it's almost like a before and then after. Type one is the before the fraud happens and type two is after the fraud happens. And well, do you need one or the other or both? You need both. And the, the the type that most institutions have had for years is type two, right? They, they have their fraud software, it's analyzing transactions, and it's sending up alerts. Um, I think institutions have been slower to adopt the first type, um, but until they do so, they can't really get their arms around fraud. Um, it, and there are so many of these solutions now that I, I don't understand how a financial institution can explain why they're not using one of them. I think it's important that they do both. Do both. I have to agree. Doing both is going to be important. But what I hear a lot of times is, well, it really depends on the size of your institution. Uh, for example, I'll hear the smaller credit unions, the smaller banks, they'll say, well, we're not the large regional or national bank, so we don't have to go to the same extent. Or they'll say we don't have the deep pockets the, to be able to spend on the products like they do. So my question to you is, you know, the expert in this area, 
does it actually make a difference if you are a small credit union or community bank compared to one of those large regional or national banks as far as what you can do and what you should be doing? Hmm, should be doing, I think they should be doing the same thing. Um, I realize the it's a funding um, issue, it really is. Some of these solutions aren't terribly pricey, but what happens is there needs to be a project around it, right? It's the project of sending out an RFP and getting, you know, estimates and quotes and then reviewing the software and then the hard part integrating it with your current software. Um, so I can I can really appreciate the burden on the smaller institution, but I don't think a smaller institution can say, hey, we don't have as much fraud. Um, they, they probably they probably have less fraud because they're processing fewer transactions, but as a percentage of transactions, it's likely very similar. Well, you know, it's interesting when, when you say that having less fraud because of less transactions. I know in the early days of mobile remote deposit capture, they said our fraud control is we're going to look at every item. And I was like, well, I can actually get that in some cases. But I look now and I see that, especially in the smaller institution, it's usually one or two people are all of operations and they're doing checks, cards, wires and ACH, and they will be the ones responsible for the newer, faster payments. And with the speed of the faster payments, do you think that it's even possible that somebody could still to this day do that manual review on everything that's coming in, especially knowing that like with RTP and Fed now, you've got seconds. And I mean, seconds, you got to know that it's come in, you got to look at it and you got to make a decision. I don't think it's possible without um, <clears throat> automation. I think the after the fact fraud alerts are going to become so numerous that, you know, smaller, smaller shops are going to struggle with it. Um, you really have to start catching this and preventing it from the get go. Um, otherwise, if you don't have that, you know, that first type of solution in place, the number of alerts is just going to be staggering after the mm -hmm. fact. Um, and and there's other reasons, you know, some of that fraud is going to get through. A lot of the fraud is now going to help a fraudster create or at least validate his own synthetic ID. Um, you, you know, most fraud pro proceeds go toward um, bad, bad things, right? They go toward other types of crime and terrorism. So there are lots of reasons to prevent the fraud begin with. Uh, I cannot disagree more. Plus, one of the things I've told those institutions is be careful. These fraudsters are so smart, so educated, so up to date on some of this stuff that they'll do the magic trick of, hey, look over here and have you looking at alerts and activity in one area while they go to another area and actually are committing the fraud because they know they've got your attention pulled away to somewhere else. So that's something that scares me. In fact, when it comes to trends in what's happening in fraud, it is an ever-changing landscape. So if I were to ask you about current trends and payments fraud, what would you say are the current things that fraudsters are doing right now? What are the current, let's call them schemes or whatever gimmicks that they have out there that they're working to be able to really, well, rip off individuals and financial institutions? 
I would say the example I gave earlier with the the fraudster creating an account with a synthetic ID, you know, a huge percentage of um, online fraud now is a synthetic ID. Transferring funds from an account where the fraudster isn't the owner, thereby funding the account with money that is not his, using that money before the R10 comes back. And that just repeats itself over and over and over again. Um, and even if that account gets created with a synthetic ID and the fraudster doesn't perpetrate fraud right away, um, he has now sort of solidified one more time that synthetic ID, making that synthetic ID look more real a month from then when um, he tries to use it again. Um, the more those accounts get opened, the harder it is for the software to pick it up as being a synthetic ID. So just just to make sure I'm understanding and the listeners are understanding too, because I tell people that this is one of the things they do and they're like, that's that just doesn't make sense. You're basically saying a synthetic ID is it's a false idea. It's something that's made up. That's hence the synthetic. Somebody else made it up and they will go in. They'll create accounts with it. So it's an account that belongs to if it's somebody real, it's definitely not the fraudster. And if it is somebody real, it's the person has no idea this account has been opened in their name. Sometimes these are just created out of nowhere in some cases too. They then start getting money into the account and they take advantage of the return timeframes. They take advantage of the time of something being identified and the time of something being returned or coming back as being returned and being no good to actually move the money out. Is that basically what is happening in these situations? Absolutely. You you hit the nail on the head in terms of that. Yep. And sometimes uh -huh. if it's all about creating synthetic ID, um, they don't necessarily have to, you know, perpetrate another fraud. They may have simply wanted the account. So what you're saying on top of this is one of these trends is they get into the account, get control, have this account created for the purpose of really they're, they're setting up for a bigger take. They're putting this play in place so that they know they'll be able to get past some of other controls we know of that they know of to be able to give them a bigger scheme or a bigger chance at a bigger piece of pie later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. The more that happens, the more difficult it becomes for the software to pick it up as being a synthetic ID. Wow. They're very clever and they're very patient. <laughs> Patience being the key. That's the part that other people don't believe, too, is, uh, you know, they think uh, when you talk to the layman or you talk to somebody new in the industry, they think, that people steal as fast as they can right away. And I, I've been arguing faster payments will not equal faster fraud. It will equal a faster way for them to move funds if they can. But it's been known for years that fraudsters a lot of times will sit on top of accounts once they are compromised, that they will be, like you said, patient, monitor the activity so that they can find a way to start pulling funds out with out it being detected so that they, in some cases, get away for it for months before it even gets noticed. Is that been your experience as well? I would say that's been my experience, exactly. <clears throat> Most of the time they wanna create a synthetic ID, um, let it mature, right? They wanna mature synthetic ID so that it's hard for systems to pick up on it. And then they're gonna start to go for loans. 
um, you know, bigger and bigger as they go along. And then they have what's called a bust out scheme. A bust out scheme. Exactly. What, what's a bust out scheme? Is that where they bust the money out or, or they're, they're, you know, it sounds like, hey, my friends got locked up. I'm going to bust them out. But in this case, they're going to bust the money out, right? Yeah, they get they get a loan and, um, you know, they build up their credit score so that they get a larger loan and a larger loan and a larger loan. And all of a sudden they get out of Dodge. <laughs> they are gone and the bank is left holding the bag. So these fraudsters could probably help the industry by educating people on how to build up your credit score. Maybe not to commit <laughs> fraud, but hey, here's ways that you can build up your credit score. I love it. I love it. Okay. Now I want to shift gears a little bit on you and I want to start talking about like uh, the new NACHA account validation rule. I know that was something that was created and that it affects, you know, our web debits and it was made to help combat fraud and what can we can do to be able to stop it. And when, you know, I say faster payments, I always tell people same day ACH qualifies as a faster payment because it's much faster than it was before or historically. It actually can take place within that day and it's the same day part. So it is important to understand the rules and how they're working. What do you have to tell people about the NACHA account validation rule and what it does to help with either eliminating, which I think is impossible, but at least reducing or identifying fraud? I think the NACHA account validation rule um, is a great step in the right direction. Um, it's sort of a shot across the bow. It's simply going to require financial institutions to use a commercially reasonable fraud transaction system. Um, you know, that's very vague. What it doesn't do is it doesn't require financial institutions to validate the ownership of the account. Um, it, it, like I said, it's a step in the right direction. I don't believe there's going to be much impact on fraud. <clears throat> there would be no impact on the scenario you and I have been talking about, you know, on, on this session. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it oh, over time, I think Notch is just going to, um, I can't speak for them. I know what I would do, <laughs> you know, just make it a little more stringent as time goes on. Let financial institutions um, adapt to simply having the role and then maybe, you know, down the road require that ownership be validated. I, I think you're right, actually, and uh, from my experience, years of working with NACHA, they do tend to actually put something out and then add to it over time as they see trends or as they see, you know, better ways of doing things. But that's usually, it's not always. Uh, I, I agree with you on this, too. I thought at first it'd be a great deterrent, but the reality is the fraudsters stay up on top of this stuff and more educated than even some of us experts do. So. We, I think that's one that time will tell. I would love to see the data in five years uh, with the, the rule now live, what it, it actually looks like. I but, think that would be great. <laughs> well, you know, well, we have, of, go ahead. I was going to say the, the fraudsters, they stick together. They have the dark web. Um, they're extremely clever. What, what we have is we have artificial intelligence and we have, you know, behavior analytics and hopefully that's being used in both types of fraud software. The first type that's mostly um, ID um, authentication 
And the second type that's sort of after the fact, looking at patterns and trends, uh-huh. hopefully at some point in time, our use of artificial intelligence and behavioral analytics will start to beat out the fraudsters. <laughs> I hope and, so. And- it just seems like every time we, we catch up with them, they, they take off and do something new. And I've never felt like we've been ahead of them. Always seems like it's a game of catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, and w- one more thing I want to ask about when it comes to like rules and regulations, too, is with the uh, regulation E, that's one that is huge on when it comes to working with consumers and their rights and their protections. And with the CFPB and their latest FAQ and interpretation of regulation E, what's that going to really do to impact fraud at all? If it does anything, what would it do to be able to impact fraud? Well, regulation E is huge. And, um, you know, as a, as a practitioner, I appreciate the CFPB at least clarifying um, what, what their intent is with respect to regulation E. But it's one of those regulations that crosses over between consumer regulatory compliance and financial crime. Because what regulation E is pretty much saying is Mrs. Jones just made a transaction, right? She actually made it, but she was duped into making it by a fraudster. What Regulation E, the new FAQs, is saying is that that is fraud, and if she puts in a dispute, she needs to get her money back. Um, that was a little bit of a gray area for a couple of years, and it's it's only going to help the industry with that clarification. <clears throat> uh, I, I think so, I've always called it regulation over protection instead of just consumer <laughs> pr- protection, because to me, in some of those cases, the ones I've seen where people have been duped, I've seen the ones where, okay, I feel bad for you, but it's still your fault. But I've seen the ones where it's like, oh, wow, I do see where it's not your fault. But those are few and far between. So that, that that's where, you know, thank you for that. But I, I think some of it is people need to be responsible for their money at some point in time, too. It's true. Um, and, and the impact on the, the marketplace, I think, is that it's going to make fraud increase, right? Because mm-hmm. the <clears throat> the fraudster knows what's going on. The fraudster knows that the victim simply has to complain and he or she will get their money back. Um, the, the, the losers are the financial institutions. Absolutely. They're the ones who take it on the chin. Um, we, we, as an industry, we have to come up with a way to help the consumer be more responsible. That answer is training, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and some some it, it it needs to be the financial institution with the training. I know AARP does a great job with the training, but uh, you know we have to. The industry in general just has to get better at, at training the consumer about fraud. Well, when you mentioned AARP, it almost wants me to take this in a discussion in another area. But uh, listeners, uh, that's for another day. I'll have to tell you uh, more adventures of the professor's mother. But for now, I want to ask one more question in relation to fraud and fraud controls, really. And that's pulling out your crystal ball of fraud, risk and controls. As we move into the future, what does the future look like so when we have things like RTP in place and we have things like FedNow in place, what kind of controls do you foresee 
financial institutions having in place to be able to protect themselves, like you said, they're the ones who usually take the loss, but also to be able to protect their account holders. I'm just going to say multi-layered controls, um, like the ones we've been talking about. I My crystal ball shows someday where all financial institutions have both. And I think we're going to get there quicker than expected. Um, you know, at some point in time, the regulators, that you know, a regulator never comes in during exam and says, you must get this. But they have a way of citing findings <laughs> such that the financial institution, you know, knows what direction they need to go in. Um, so my crystal ball shows that institutions will soon have both types um, and they might have different flavors of each type for each, you know, for um, account opening, for payment, for online loans. So I see it's a Rubik's cube of solutions. I, I got to agree with you. And, and um, I know a lot of the listeners are screaming recommendulations right now. Um, recommendulations is a payments professor term of when you have that regulator that has that way of citing findings, basically telling you, you don't have to do this, but you have to go do this. So exactly. that, that's what on the show we've referred to many times as recommendulations. All right. Last question I got for you today, Sharon. And, and this is one I like to throw over everybody. It's more of a curveball question, though. And that is, you are somebody who is very well established in what you do. I mean, in my preparing for this session with you, just talking to you today, it shows how well your knowledge of this sector of the industry is. And a lot of people that listen to the payments podium are new to the payments industry. And they're wanting to build their careers. They're looking at people like you and going, okay, what did you do to get into the position that you are? So at this point, I like to ask, what advice would you give to somebody who's new in the payments industry, that's new in the banking industry, or maybe even new in treasury, because we get listeners from all over, that is wanting to build up their career and, and wanting to better themselves and have a successful career like you've had. What, what advice would you give them? Oh, gosh, I would say network, network, network. Um, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. I'm, I'm sure it's okay to say that. Um, feel free to link with me. I do enjoy being a mentor. <clears throat> I publish a lot. And, uh, you know, there's so much information out there with respect to fraud. Your podcast is a perfect example where the knowledge that can be learned is real hands-on knowledge. Um, if you're in a financial institution, move around a lot, <clears throat> move around into various departments because you're going to see the various ways transactions occur. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's a lot of, it's a lot of networking. I'm fond of certifications. <laughs> um, just, you know, take a look at my LinkedIn profile and that'll become pretty evident. So certifications are always very helpful. There are many fraud certifications. There are ACH certifications. I'm a big fan of all of them. Well, you know, and I love that because folks, all you listeners out there, Sharon is on the payments podium today because of networking. It was because of a, a second party that we both know that we were introduced to each other. And from that discussion came this particular session. So Sharon, I want to thank you so much for being on the payments podium. You really gave us a lot, you know, the type one, type two, the before and after, the ways that people are using these synthetic IDs and how it affects everybody. And all you out there listening, if 
you want, again, it's Sharon Blanchett. You can go find her on LinkedIn, start following her. She put some great information out there. If there's a topic that you think should be on the payments podium, let me know. Email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. Maybe there's a speaker that you know should be on the payments podium. Again, topics, speakers, or even if it's you and you want to be on the payments podium, email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. For today, this concludes the payments podium. And I got to say, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.